0: Hi, I'm Jennifer ackerman Kaywood, and you're listening to the Craft Sanity Podcast. On episode 134, I am going to bring you a conversation with Nancy McRae. Nancy is a fiber artist living in the East Lansing area. I interviewed her for my newspaper column for the Grand Rapids Press and MLive.com to kind of preview her visit this upcoming week to the Michigan League of Hand Weavers workshops. So she's going to be teaching there this week in Holland, Michigan at Hope College. It was a good opportunity for me to check in with her and hear her story, which is very interesting. She got into fiber art. In a way, it's kind of an unplanned thing, but clearly meant to be. And I'm not going to steal her thunder. But one of the cool things about Nancy is that she really does listen to that internal voice that tells her what she needs to do next. And she's gone through many different creative phases. She seems to do that rather happily. And um, she seems to be very true to herself as she makes those decisions and seems to appreciate each phase of that creative life. So I think there are many takeaways here for the rest of us to kind of just embrace the seasons of life, enjoy the experiences we have while we're having them. And then when it's time to move on to something else, it's okay to go ahead and make that change. And so I think there's plenty of inspiration in this episode. One thing I do want to mention though, though I'll have a little announcement at the end of the podcast. I've been doing some brainstorming with my husband to try to figure out how to keep craft sanity going in a way where it doesn't poop out again. I took an unplanned hiatus because it's always been an unpaid thing that I did because I love to interview artists and crafters But the reality is I can't go to the grocery store and say, hey, I I do this free podcast. Can you guys give me some groceries for free? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. There's a platform now available to help podcasters finance what they do. So I'll explain a little bit about that at the end of the show. But in the meantime, I hope you can uh, grab a cup of tea and sit back, relax and uh, get inspired by Nancy McRae.
1: I really want to back up just a little bit um, to about a year ago, I sold my yarn shop. I loved having the yarn shop. I loved interacting with people who were, were creating like me on a daily basis, but frankly, they were creating a whole lot more than I was. And it began to feel like more of a detour than what I should be actually doing, so I returned to the practice of art about a year ago. For
0: those who don't know, if you can tell people the name of the yarn shop and where that was located. The name
1: of the yarn shop is Woven Art, um, taken from my, my business name when I was practicing as a fiber artist, a weaver. Um, I just subsumed that name and turned it into a yarn shop. And now, Woven Art is no longer me. It's Meg Croft in East Lansing.
0: Okay. And so how many years did you own the shop? Uh, 10th. So was it really that pull to create
1: that pulls you back? It was probably more complex and more subtle than that. Um, I've always thought of myself as an artist. I earned an MFA from University of Michigan in 1995 with a focus on fibers. And I've worked with galleries and experimental spaces. But the call to have a yarn shop was very, very strong. So Eventually, I just I kind of knew that I had to do it so that I could cross <laughs> it off my list, right? And it it was a ten year long adventure, but the entire time I was very aware that I still wanted to live my life as as an artist, and so now now I've returned to that.
0: And did you make that transition gradually?
1: I was very aware of what my goal was, and so I had um, a wonderful new potential owner right under my nose working in my shop. So uh, in the last year or two that I owned the store, I gave her increasing responsibilities Mm -hmm. and sort of watched how that went and um, convinced her that she could do this. And then, um, yes, I started to pull away in the last year especially. I I was pulling away and allowing us both to Get comfortable with our new roles.
0: As a kid, did you do weaving? Or were you into? Do you have any other fiber artists in your family, or did you just kind of come into this um, in your own studies?
1: We all knitted and crocheted. My sisters and my mom and I um, throughout my childhood, and then um, in college, I did. I dabbled a little bit just for relaxation. But when I graduated from college with a degree in advertising, my parents gave me a floor loom as a present.
0: Oh, isn't that a wonderful gift? I gave myself a floor loom as a present (laughs) when I graduated.
1: (laughs) It it was a gift. It is a wonderful gift. and I'm glad (laughs) that you gave yourself that. I often have wondered what possessed my parents to do that. How do you pick that for someone else?
0: Were you weaving at the time? No. Well, that's something else. And what did you think when you got this loom? And what kind of loom
1: did you get? I'm very curious. I got an. Oh, it's called an ulna. U L N A. Probably a Swedish loom. Maybe not made anymore. It had string heddles, four harness. Uh, probably weaving width of about 18 inches. What did you think? I was sort of dumbfounded, but <laughs> intrigued. But what my parents did not know is that I used to stand in the doorway of the weaving program at MSU and just look. And I tried to get into the class, and there was no way. It was so popular. There was no getting into that class. So I sort of shrugged and thought, well, okay, you know, I don't. I'm, it's not for me. Apparently, it's not for me. And then, then I was gifted this loom. And so also they were smart enough to give me some weaving lessons. And so then I kind of took off on it.
0: Wow! And do you think somebody told your parents that they had seen their daughter? Uh, like, oh, by the way, your daughter wants to weave. <laughs> That's really no, else. I don't
1: think so. Wow. My 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 mom was a potter and um, a painter. Okay. And so I think I must have asked her, Mom, what what are you thinking here? And what I remember what she said to me was that she wanted. To give me a gift that would be just for me, just about me. Wow. Um, in all of her wisdom, she knew that as yeah. an adult woman, a lot of my life would be taken up by other people and mm-hmm. other responsibilities, and she wanted me to have something that was all mine. That's beautiful. What a great gift. Yeah. That's yeah, really great. Yeah, absolutely. I don't think she had any idea how much she would change my life. Well, yeah, life.
0: my goodness. So then what happened?
1: Well, um, then I wove fairly seriously for a few years, and then I had babies um, and waited until I had three little babies running around and took it up again, and this time really in earnest. And I've been studying and teaching and um, developing my weaving skills ever since, except for this little bit of the slowdown for the last 10 years.
0: So did you, how old were your children at the point that you went back to get an MFA
1: in fiber? Um, I went back to school for art as a special student at MSU and then at U of M when my youngest was one. So they were one, three, and five when I went back to school.
0: Were you full-time at that point or part-time
1: in school? Full-time. I really wanted to push forward and kind of get it completed in a timely fashion. Right. I think especially art degrees, you really get moving in a direction and interrupting that would be, you'd you'd have to start all over again with a thought process, I think. So
0: did you spend two years in school, or how long did it take? It was just under two years. What did you do after you graduated?
1: I went directly out to the Anderson Ranch for a week there, and while I was there, I got a phone call offering me a position as the fine arts coordinator for East Lansing Recreation and Arts, and so I ran the arts programs there for about five years. Wow, cool.
0: That sounds like a fun job. And again,
1: I left that because I wasn't doing any artwork. I loved that job. I loved working with a variety of artists, and I loved seeing what the students were doing and, you know, just this atmosphere of um, inspiration all over the place and at many different levels. So I loved that job, but I wasn't doing anything about my own artwork,
0: right? And yeah, and I think you—well, you sound like a, the kind of person that really is one of, a doer. You want to be out there doing the work yourself. Um, I do. Yeah, I do. And so, the transition from that job—where did you go next?
1: Um, after I left that job, then I collaborated with Leslie Donaldson and Sue Hensel, two local artists at the time. They—neither of them lived. In the Lansing area anymore um and we set up an experimental art space called the Art Department. It was in a small space upstairs, but we um over the year and a half that we did this, we really developed quite a following, and we would transform it was basically a um a room. We transformed the room about once a month, and we took turns doing installation work, and then we invited other artists to come play with us from time to time.
0: Was it kind of like a gallery setting? You sold work from there?
1: It was more of a full room transformation, so it wasn't sellable. You couldn't buy this work. One time, I it was actually right after... 9-11, coincidentally, when I began to plan the piece, it was before. So it was like during that time frame. I warped the whole room. I put a warp on the walls and on the ceiling and on the windows. And so I just left the door so that you could open it. And I put a large table in the middle with some materials, some yarns, that people could come in and weave with me on this giant tapestry loom. Oh wow! And then there are also journals there. And I asked them to write down their personal story and to weave their story in an abstract way or however they felt like doing it. In the space of a month, I had, I think, well well over 100, somewhere between 100 and 300 individual participants, and we filled the room. We warped every bit of it. Wow, in one month? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I I was there constantly.
0: How thick of yarn were you using or fabric? What were you weaving with?
1: some fabric strips, some thick yarn, some thin yarn, newspapers,
0: plastic bags, all kinds of things. What an interesting time to have that project going too.
1: It did turn out to be an interesting coincidence because I think people were really craving any sort of community. They really wanted to express their feeling of community with other people. In my grad school studies, I really wanted to stress Developing community as an answer to, at that time, environmental issues. So, using community development as a, as sort of a response to things going on in the world that I, that I didn't like, negative things, was kind of my modus operandi.
0: Had you completed a similar project
1: in graduate school? Well, um, yeah, I did a piece called the Great Belt Lakes, which is a giant floor model of the lakes cut out of white industrial felt, and this was completed in 1995, but I noticed that what I also made a sound piece that went with it, um, talking about the environmental issues and people who were using the lakes for recreation and building memories and family expeditions into the lake, overlaid with um, descriptions of the toxins that are going into the lakes and the other issues that are challenging them. So there's the audio portion and then the the lakes themselves on the floor. Uh, But when I tried to show it to people um, initially as I was sort of still in process, I noticed that I couldn't get people to listen to me talking about it. They were way more interested in pointing to where their cottage was or the place that they took a vacation or where they went fishing, (laughs) you know. Yeah. The picnic they had on the beach was right there on that point. Right. So I decided to go with it and I let, um, I invited everyone who sees the piece to interact with the piece by writing me that memory. They, so I supplied them with paper and pens and little pins. They write down their memory and then they push pin it to the spot. So oh, cool. every time this, the lakes, the lakes actually have traveled all over the country and everywhere they go, they accumulate these layers of paper and memories. Oh, wow. So you've
0: just left them all there.
1: Yes, I did. And then every time I take the show down, I collect them and I put them in photo albums. And, um,
0: and so the, the next photo, The
1: previous, right, they're always available. And this, I actually entered that piece into Art Prize this year.
0: Oh, cool. So that's going to be on display this coming year? Yes. Oh, wh- which venue are you going to be at? Uh,
1: Grappit's. G-R-A-P-I-D-S. It's an irrigation company, sort of near the railroad, and they'll have five other artists in the space. It's a great space.
0: Is it going to be interactive this time as well?
1: It is. I finally figured out a way to work in the audio without overwhelming the space. I'm going to create a GR code that will link to the audio on my blog. Okay. So you can point your smartphone at it if you want to hear the audio. And, of, of course, I definitely want to collect people's memories and notes. So I'm really looking forward to, you know, at at our prize, there's going to be a ton of people. So we probably won't be able to see, to, like, after the first week.
0: <laughs> you know, you may be right about that. I know we kind of left off in the trajectory here. You know, after grad school, we had a couple stops. Did you? Was your next stop the yarn shop?
1: But, right. The next stop then was the yarn shop and that was um, really great fun, as I said before, and I loved interacting with the customers and encouraging a lot of creativity um, in students and, and uh, that was just the best. I really do, and so that, that's what became the interactive and community component for me was teaching, um, which I still am doing quite a bit of and I love that.
0: You taught uh, weaving at your yarn shop. Was that your main thing that you taught there?
1: Well, yeah. I I um I wasn't a very good knitter when I opened up the yarn shop, to be quite honest. And so I I set up some weaving classes that I taught, and then I hired other people to teach knitting. But I realized very quickly that I really needed to be an expert knitter as well. So I did. I became I became an expert knitter <laughs> so that I could help people solve their problems, and yeah. I thought. Knitting, and I taught crochet
0: and all different forms of weaving. And are you still knitting now on occasion? Do you enjoy it?
1: Yeah, I do. I still enjoy it. I've, um, just before I sold the yarn shop, I was really getting into publishing patterns of my own on Ravelry. And that was great fun. I loved writing the patterns. I really thought I would do more of that after I sold a shop and I haven't done anything.
0: So for this last year, what have you been doing? What is your, your main focus now? What kind of work are you creating?
1: As soon as I left the shop, I knew that I needed to start weaving right away. And tapestry was something that I had really, really enjoyed doing, but I hadn't touched tapestry for a good many years, maybe, you know, five to ten years. So um, I I had a warp on the loom from before, and I challenged myself to just sit down and weave with no plan. So my rules became I had to spin the yarn, and I would not judge what I was weaving. I would just respond to my weaving every day, and it became a reflection of what was happening in my life, actually. So I've been working on a series of what I'm kind of calling the tapestry diaries. I've got about five of them completed, and I plan to continue to do this until next May.
0: Okay, great. How big are the pieces? They are
1: 13 by 13.
0: Okay. And so what kind of tapestry loom are you working with? A Mirax. Okay. Those are nice. I don't have one that nice. (laughs) But
1: yeah, that's nice. It's wonderful.
0: Yeah. How long did it take you to get through that, to finish the warp that you had on there?
1: Um, I think the first one took me about three months. And then the second one took me about two months. And I really started speeding up. I make sure that I work on the tapestry at least one hour per day five days a week. That's good. That's a good
0: way to see progress. Right. Well,
1: and then I have to spin for a half an hour every day. Oh, so you spin, you spin what you weave every
0: day. So you spin first and then
1: weave?
0: Oh, excellent. Yep. Very fun. Yep. Did you set up a color palette or is that random
1: too? Well, for the, for the very first one, it was really random. It was based a little bit on what I had available to me and what I was responding to emotionally because that transition, even though it was an absolutely positive thing to do, it was still kind of stressful and disorienting, and so there's a lot of yellow and black and zigzag in the first tapestry. Mm-hmm. And then um, the next one is much calmer, um, more way more neutral in colors. The one after that was woven about this time that my family and I went to the Caribbean for a, a vacation, and so it looks like... A coral reef. Oh,
0: cool. So,
1: even though I'm not planning the tapestry, I'm still very firm about that, and I'm responding every day just to what I'm weaving. It's really pretty clear to me that the tapestries themselves are illustrating kind of what's happening in my life and where I am mm-hmm. emotionally, physically, and then I'm also playing around a lot with collapsed weave and other weave structures. Something that became really clear to me this week, probably Convergence had a a real influence on that, is that while um, I love selling my work, I love to, but that's not going to be my driving force. My driving force really is going to be innovation, experimentation, and teaching the things that I discover along the way.
0: Do you get attached to your work, I mean, to the point where you really don't want to part with it and sell it?
1: The longer I own it, the more attached I usually become to it. But I really don't have any trouble sending the mountains of the world to, to a good home.
0: I know there's a couple of events that I mentioned earlier that you're going to be teaching at. Here in West Michigan and Holland, you're going to be at the MLH, Michigan League of Handweavers, their workshops. And uh, what are yep. you going to be teaching there?
1: I'm going to be teaching uh, Foundations of Tapestry. So it will be... Here to people who haven't ever loved in tapestry or to people who do leave tapestry but they'd like to establish some really good habits. Do you, do you have you ever loved tapestry? I
0: have done some tapestry, and I do enjoy it. I love the portability of it because you actually can take your whole project with you. Uh, your floor loom doesn't oh, yeah, allow you right. that option.
1: Nope. No, but because you've had some experience with tapestry, you know that The foundation of the warp is really, really important. You have to have a good, even tension on your warp that has to be under really high tension to be successful in your your weaving with it. So in this class, we will start with warping. We'll warp in class. I won't ask the students to come with a loom already warped, which um, is pretty common. And then from there, we'll talk about um, basic joins and how to make shapes and how to create lines. There are several different types of joining and they're all good for different reasons. So we'll talk about how to make the choices um, when you're in the middle of your tapestry, which join that you should be using. And we'll make some diagonal lines. I've got a sampler uh, project that people can do or they can do their own thing during the class. And then if we have time, we might talk a little bit about catching and shading techniques. This is three days,
0: not just one day?
1: No, it's three days, and that's great. Um, The class that I just took in convergence was two days, and I wove as hard as I could. I really (laughs) was in my chair, focused and beating and placing, and my back was on fire all the way up my neck. Oh, no. Because, you know, I I was sitting there from 9 to 4, just really focused and working in two days and all I could think of the end of that day other than I want an aspirin was I want another day right it was not
0: long enough I'm just noticing the tapestry seems to be coming to the forefront again and I don't know have you noticed that or is that is that something that's actually happening or am I just uh, making a a false extrapolation from my Instagram feed
1: (laughs) (laughs) I don't I, I, I don't know I don't know the answer to your question. Um, I know that I want it to be true, <laughs> I so do I, too. Could, I could point <laughs> to evidence that supports that. But I, I will say that the previous convergences, maybe there would be a tapestry class. It wasn't quite as prevalent, and this year there were several classes. Rebecca Mezoff's class that I was in had 25 people in it and a waiting list. Oh, wow. So there is some evidence right there that there is a resurgence in the interest in tapestry. And I've been thinking about your question um, as to why that might be. And I, I don't know, but there are a couple of factors that are helping it. Um, the DIY movement in general is helping
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, all kinds of cyber arts. And the slow movement also is supporting tapestry because there's nothing much slower than that.
0: No, that's, yeah, definitely the slowest way to
1: weave. Right. But slow is no longer a dirty word. So who are you seeing showing up in your classes? There's definitely a mix, but it is mostly women, uh, mostly newly retired, I would think. But there always is the um, unusual variant, either a much younger person, male or female, or sometimes it's someone who is actually very knowledgeable about what you're doing, but they realize that tapestry is actually something that can be studied in great depth, which I think may also be part of the current appeal. Uh, A lot of the people who have been entering crafting and really enjoying it maybe are looking for something that's a little more complex on the surface. Tapestry is a very simple structure. It's just plain leaf. All the weft threads go over one and under one all the way across. So on, superficially, it's very simple and straightforward. But then you begin to study the different ways of of joining them and of making shapes and of grading color. And then suddenly you're into color theory and you're into composition and you're into keeping your fabric pliable and your edges straight and mm-hmm. trying to make make the whole thing be square and there's just so much written and so many people out there who are teaching if I have an opportunity to take a tapestry class even though I've done it and I've taken some classes I would take it again just because I will learn a new way of doing something in every class it can be studied for years
0: Uh, what size do you prefer to work when you're working on a tapestry
1: well recently it's been small you know about a foot square Before that, uh, when I was doing tapestries, they were about 24 by 36. And then there's part of me that would like to do bigger than that. I don't really have a format preference. It's more along the lines of what I'm doing right now and what my equipment is right now.
0: Mm -hmm. And to to weave bigger than the, to go larger than what you've done, what kind of equipment would you have to get? Would you have to get a really big loom, or would you kind of rig up your well, own kind of structure? I
1: already own three miraxes of different sizes, so I could get <laughs> one bigger mirax and that would allow me to do something about forty inches in one direction. Okay, but I'm actually considering trying to find a used four-harness floor loom to do a larger piece on. Interesting.
0: Yeah, and that would allow you to be able to kind of just roll it up as you as you weave it.
1: Right. And there, there's a difference between working, that would be called working on a low warp if you're working on a floor loom,
0: mm-hmm.
1: because the warp is horizontal, um, as opposed to working on a high warp with a vertical warp. I think it's actually easier on your body if you can move back and forth from one to the other.
0: Would you find that the tension is a little bit easier to manage when you have the floor loom that can handle that for you?
1: It's not easier than the high-warp tapestry looms that are actually designed for tapestry, like the Mirax or the, the Schacht has a tapestry loom as well. Okay. If you're working on a simple frame, you know, you can buy a frame at Michael's and nail some nails into it and throw a warp on it, um, then you have no control over the tension. And so that would be a downside to that. You can still weave a wonderful tapestry on it, but it's going to be a little more challenging because you don't have any control over the tension. Right. But on, on both the, the floor loom, of course, you do. A lot of control, and then the um, if you were to buy a high warp tapestry loom, that is the thing you really want to make sure you can do is adjust the tension.
0: What's going on at Interlock, and is this the first year this event has happened?
1: Yes, it is. They have a new director of the Adult Creative College. Her name is Leslie Donaldson, and she is very interested in getting a lot of uh, fiber arts classes there for um, adult learners. Awesome. And Part of this is that she wanted to do a retreat-style weekend of um, classes and an experience, and we decided that the focus of the first one, it should be themed, and the theme is Farm to Fabric. So we're collaborating with um, an organization called Island, the Institute for Sustainable Land, Agriculture, and Natural Design, or something like that. We're going to have a panel discussion On Friday night with fiber producers, designers, and users to discuss the possibility of a Michigan fiber shed. Oh,
0: wow.
1: Yeah, it's going to be so cool. And then Saturday at noon, there will be a talk during lunch about the sources of your clothing, how to be more aware of exactly where your clothing comes from and what the consequences are of having your clothing come from so far away and made so cheaply and made by people who aren't paid well and who've got health issues because of their work, you know, on and on. And then in between those two things, we have a series of classes. For people who are really interested in taking it from the sheep all the way to fabric, either through knitting it, spinning it, there will be four opportunities to get your hands into an indigo dye pot, Um, a couple of weaving lectures. So I'm pretty excited about the possibilities there. The two classes that I'm going to teach, one will be reading weaving drafts. A lot of uh, newer weavers find that nomenclature very mysterious and they don't really know what to do with them or how to understand them. So Mm -hmm. I'm going to clarify that. And then the other one that I want to teach is um, designing for weaving. So starting with, say, a fabulous skein of hand-spun yarn and you kind of have an idea of what to do with it, how do you get it from point A to something that you would want to wear? through sampling and and measuring and doing a bunch of math, and we'll talk about that in uh, great detail.
0: Is it the hope of you and the other folks that are leading this event and participating that this will become an annual event at Interlaken?
1: Yes, that is definitely our hope. If that can come about, what we would like to add for the following year would be a fashion show of garments or maybe household goods, that are sourced primarily in Michigan.
0: And I think it also encourages people to, to dream a little bit about what they might be able to personally do or what they might be able to do as a community to pave the way for maybe a mill to open or, you know, start, you know, we have, I know, spoon flower, you can print fabric, print on fabric. um, But I would love to see more of the fabric that when you go to the quilt shop, I would love to see more of that fabric actually woven by machine in this country again, I don't, I don't know if that right. will happen.
1: There are efforts like the one that we're initiating here, starting all over the country. There's a fiber shed in California that's been going for a long time, and they have um, developed a lot of sustainable practices and some products that you can buy. So it's it's happening, and Michigan is right there in the forefront. I'm happy to say.
0: Oh, that's great. So are there going to be products available for purchase at this event?
1: Uh, Yes, there will be some vendors there. The vendors, you know, it's optional for them to focus on Michigan-based products, but I I think that they probably will either focus on Michigan-based or U.S.-manufactured products to buy. Um, I expect there to be some local farms with their fleeces there, so you can buy yourself a michigan Uh, fleece and then you can go to the drop spindle class and learn how to make it into yarn and then you can dye it in the indigo bat and then you can come to my class and i'll tell you how to make it into a something (laughs) well that'll be great (laughs) And, and how many days is this event it's uh three days with the friday night panel um ending saturday or rather sunday afternoon so there'll be Two classes, two class sessions on Sunday, I think, and four class sessions on Saturday. Okay. And all of the information is just went live on the Interlochen website. So you can sign up now. I, there are only 50 spots. So okay. If you if you are interested, don't uh, hesitate.
0: So will people be staying on the campus then,
1: or is it in a hotel or where? Housing will be on um, their own. There is a hotel on campus, and then there are a couple of other good options nearby. And Traverse City's got lots of good hotel options.
0: Now, do you teach there on a regular basis, too, or do you have a relationship with this with Interlochen, or is this uh, your first time being connected with what they're doing?
1: Uh, no, I taught... a this summer, I taught a dye class and the rigid heddle weaving class. And this fall, in addition to the um, fall fiber event, I'm going to do a coil basket workshop.
0: Oh, cool. So you're a regular up there now. That's wonderful.
1: I am faculty, yes.
0: Wonderful. I'm delighted to say. A couple of things I want to touch on, if, if I may. Okay. One yeah. in particular is there are going to be a lot of people who will listen to this and think, geez... I would really like to go to art school, too. And maybe they didn't take that traditional path that um, a lot of artists will take, you know, go to get their undergraduate degree in art, and then if they continue on and get a master's in art, and then go on and teach and make art, and, and everything's kind of a, a straight trajectory. There are a lot of artists who don't take that path, and you're one of them, and you went to back to, to get your MFA later on with a little gap in between. Uh, how old were you when you went to graduate school for art? 30. 30? Yeah, I was 30. Okay, well that's still quite young too, so um, now that I'm about to be 38, I can say 30 is quite young.
1: (laughs) Yeah, right. Your perspective changes. In grad grad school, being in grad school in my early 30s was fine, but um, going back to undergraduate school when I was 28, it felt old. I felt really much older than the other students, and the professors noticed that I was older than the other students, sometimes in ways that weren't wonderful.
0: Oh, boy. So were you trying to take your core art classes on before you went into your master's program? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes, I I needed to have some grounding before I um, even attempted to do that. Um, And I was really, really lucky. I did two years of undergraduate work at um, MSU, realized that they really didn't have what I needed in terms of fiber, so I went to the University of Michigan and I talked to Sherry Smith and she said, well, you're not ready for grad school. So I'm going to enroll you as a special student, and which is what she did. And then I studied there as a special student for another two years before I was accepted into the graduate degree program. I see. Okay.
0: So it was you had to be um, kind of stick with it and jump through some hoops.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are a lot of hoops that you have to jump through and you really have to be very determined that that's what you want.
0: Do you have any advice, folks out there, who might be contemplating going back to school and getting the art degree that has eluded them for so long?
1: Um, Well, you know, your heart wants what your heart wants, and I think that you ignore that to your detriment. So if it is something that you really know you want and you're willing to pay the cost without getting your investment back in a like manner, if you understand what mm-hmm. I mean. Yes. You can, you can pay tens of thousands of dollars, and you may not earn a penny of it back directly from artwork. So you kind of have to know that going in, and you have to know that you could also be investing years of your life to get this very elusive satisfaction of knowing more about your art form. So, if you decide that that is a price you're willing to pay, then absolutely at that point, you kind of have to i think if you if your answer is still yes. <laughs> right hearing all yeah, that. I still want that right right the The odds of getting a job as a professor with an m f a are pretty small. The odds of being able to support yourself just by making your artwork are also pretty small. You can come out of there with different ways of supporting yourself and feeding yourself while being an artist. And I think going and knowing that you may have to be flexible about what the outcome is is also an important thing
0: what do you have to say as far as encouragement for those who might be really looking to dive into fiber arts but for them they might not live near a campus with a fiber program or it's just not the right time what advice do you have for somebody that really wants to just dive right in where would you point a person to kind of get started with their own independent study of fiber art that might involve studying with some of the masters out there
1: well, HGA has a great certificate of excellence program. That is one of the avenues, and you can, you again, you hook up with some with a mentor who will help you. But they also have, I think it's a TLC, uh, teaching learning connection, something like that. So you can still get individual assistance through HGA. Will help you find your teachers and your mentors. So they have a great program for that. The American Tapestry Alliance also has programs where you can work with an individual tapestry artist, even if you're not located near each other at all. So these are are all distance learning opportunities. There's tons of conferences. Every state will have a state guild of some kind that will have classes and workshops like the Michigan League of Hand Weavers. They have an annual conference and you can take workshops there. All of these opportunities are going to be in-depth and a, and a high level of instruction and a high level of learning. Often you will find classes in your very own community through your city arts programs. If you're lucky enough to have a city that has an arts program, check that out. Also look for local guilds and, you know, depending on where you live, you may have to expand your definition of what's local. You might have to be willing to drive an hour to get to a guild meeting, but those are wonderful resources for people who have the same passion that you do.
0: It's got to be fun as an instructor for you to be in a class where everyone wants to be there and they're not trying to get a degree, or and you don't have to grade them. Is
1: that kind of nice? It's great. It's really wonderful. It gives me flexibility in how I teach. When I when I teach at Woven well, Art, um and when I teach at MLH also, I have the option of working with everyone as an individual. Right. So whatever your skill level is, when you come into the room, I will move you along from that point. You don't have to be you don't have to have any prior knowledge or you can have prior knowledge and we'll take you forward from wherever you are. Right. So I love that. In a in a formal setting, I don't think I would have that kind of freedom.
0: So unless there's something else that you want people to know, I will let you get on with your evening. I know you've had a long day. It's been a whirlwind just coming back from Convergence.
1: It has been. It's been it's been really great. Now I'm looking forward to uh, spending the weekend kind of reflecting on on what I learned and who I met and where where to go where to go next.
0: So thanks again.
1: Thank you so much. A special
0: thanks to Nancy for sharing her story and her inspiration. I hope all of you are now feeling an an extra boost to get out there and launch whatever you want to launch, whether that's a career in fiber art or something else. If you are feeling the call to art school, and even though there might be people in your life saying, don't do it, you can't make a living if you feel compelled, even knowing what the challenges are, and you still feel compelled, as Nancy said, the heart wants what the heart wants. So Godspeed to you all. If that's what you desire. So you can find links to Nancy's website. I'll also link to her Art Prize site. You can find all that at Craftsanity.com. I had mentioned before the show that I was trying to figure out how to keep this podcast going. As you know, I did a hundred and I think 29 episodes or 128 episodes and then took kind of this hiatus kind of out of nowhere. It wasn't planned, but my life got very busy. My husband listens to a lot of the tech podcasts and he told me about Patreon. This is a platform where podcasters start an account and you just tell your listeners, hey, you know, if you want to sponsor me for $1 a month or whatever amount you choose, they then get the money to the podcaster and the podcaster doesn't have to to handle all that financial stuff. It just is money that will come in to support the podcast. And uh, some people are podcasting every day and making their main job. Now, I would love to podcast every day. I, I think that would be really fun to every day have a podcast that I record and and go full tilt, I would love that. I I really love talking to creative people. Uh, However, I'm going to be realistic about this. Uh, (laughs) Since I've revived my podcast, it's been about once every two weeks. If I can get support from people coming in, and I treat this like a job, I think the quality is going to go up. The regularity of the show will go up. And I think it's going to be a win-win for all of us. Now, I don't really have any aspirations to be wealthy. Uh, (laughs) I really don't like asking for advertising and I don't really like asking for money, period. I'm not a salesperson. I'm just going to tell you that I will have a link on craftsanity.com. If you're curious about what this is and you want to find out more about it, uh, you can. What my hope is, is that um, if I can get just even a dollar a month from the people who listen to the show. I'm going to keep the show free. I've been doing this for a good long time, since uh, 2006. I want to continue to do it, and I'm really thankful that there's a platform like Patreon that can help podcasters who don't want to do these big campaigns to manage that. So anyway, enough said. More than enough said. I am going to be back with another show next Sunday, and this one is going to be about another fiber artist that was kind of unplanned that they were back-to-back But this one is going to be really fun. It's going to be about saori weaving. And it's, hopefully I'm pronouncing the name of this correctly, but it's a Japanese weaving method that is based on a plain weave and just uh, 24 inches across. And you basically weave with anything you want. You can put sticks in there. You can put all different kinds of fibers. It's a mixed warp. I have never done this kind of weaving, but uh, I think I'm going to actually try to today before I write my column on this artist that I interviewed, I think I'm going to try to do a little bit of it myself. Because ever since we talked, I've been like completely obsessed with the concept. I won't be able to take the workshop this year. So I'm feeling like I need to improvise at home. Tune back in next week for that episode. In the meantime, if you have any suggestions for upcoming shows, feel free to get in touch. I encourage that. You can reach me by emailing jennifer at craftsanity.com. If you are interested, how am I, uh, major reorganization project it's like a house-wide reorganization project i do not recommend that anyone else try this at home do a room at a time. (laughs) I'm trying, I'm scrambling to meet the deadline of my foot surgery. So I'm trying to like get my studio in order, get all the rooms in order, like just kind of do everything and just kind of blow up the house and put it back together. It's kind of awful and kind of wonderful at the same time. You can see some of the snippets of that adventure and anything else that I'm up to uh, on Instagram. So just look up Craft Sanity on Instagram and you can see all the the craziness that's happening over here so i hope you guys have a great week i'll be back next sunday with another episode in the meantime craft sanity my friends it works for me